at the end of class last week, Stan and Bernie came up to talk a little bit about it. And Bernie made a comment that, you know, how you say a funny thing happened to me on the way to so-and-so. It wasn't so much, it wasn't a funny comment, but it was an enlightening comment. And to that degree, it was an interesting thing happened to me on the way to class tonight. And that was the conversation we had at the end of class last week. So Bernie said, Jim, I, I think I get what you're talking about, the competence of the church, how the very design of the body of Christ and, and our part of the body of Christ, that, that is what we are. We are competent. We are able to help one another because we're believers. And I understand the preeminence of the body of Christ over other temporal relationships. So I understand that in, by faith, that's what the word of God teaches. But then she said, but why is it that when I get into one of those difficult teaching moments, counseling moments, tough trials of life, that I sometimes am afraid to say the wrong thing? If you remember saying, I, I wonder if I'm saying the right thing. I wonder if I'm being helpful. How can I be more confident in being able to bear one another's burdens on these tough issues? Because that's what we're talking about, these painful trials of life. I mean, this class isn't about one anothering in the sense of how do we make meals to support newly, you know, newborn children and moms, although that's one, part of one another in biblically, right? Or how we help the poor or we visit the sick in the hospital. I mean, all of that is part of the body of Christ. But this class is about these counseling kind of issues. And they come at us in all kinds of terms and languages and, and, and it's overwhelming. And, and so that got me thinking that because that's I told you, remember, I said, well, we're going to talk about that next week. I, I was excited that you were thinking of that. But as I thought about it, I realized that even how I organized what we're going to talk about tonight, it, it needed a better way to look at it. So you're responsible for a lot of extra work this week. <laughs> but I'm grateful for it. Very grateful for it. I hope everybody will be too because it's, and Steve's not here yet, but Steve helped me immensely and you'll see the graphics, visuals that Steve did as always, um, um, you know, be at his place at nighttime as Karen knows, you know, we'd be working on this. Well, part of the reason that Bernie and all of us feel inadequate, we all do. This is not just you. We all feel inadequate. That there's this tension going on as between what we think we should be able to say to help and, and whether our confidence of being able to help is that our current culture, both outside the church, certainly, but also well engrossed inside the church, our current culture feels no tension at all. Our current culture says, outsource it. Call a counselor. 
What are you even worried about it? Why are you even bothering with it? This isn't what you should be doing. This is what they do. So tonight we want to take the discussion a little deeper in these areas. I want to address more specifically the area of being confident of of how can we have more assurance. We're not going to ever know for sure whether what we're saying is perfect. We know that. But what I want to do is help you look at this world better in comparison to this world. And that's what the handout that I'm going to give you in a little bit. We're going to walk through six different categories to compare the the professional Christian and biblical counseling world to the one another world. Because we've been building this worldview. As you know, we've started with Foundation Belief One, which has to do with what? One word starts with an L. Life. Yeah. What it means to have life in Christ. New life. Zoe life. And how we struggle with the suke underneath, don't we? And then foundation point two, what it means to have two words. Light and sight. Yeah. What it means to have revelation from God, light. And then illumination by the Holy Spirit, sight. And we, then we spent time really delving into, as believers, how we view pain and suffering and trials and difficulties. We started here on the first night because this is what's going on. We're addressing this issue. But to address it well, we had to go back and build a little bit of foundation, a good theological foundation of what it means to be in Christ as it relates to this big issue down here. Who do we call? And why do we call? We're always focused here. There's lots of things we could talk about theologically here. This is not a course on systematic theology. It's a course on what's critical here as it relates to this question. And then we introduced last week foundation point four. Foundation belief one, life in Christ. Two, light and sight in Christ. Three, a Christian understands and interprets pain differently in Christ. And then foundation belief four, which is different than it was last week. (laughs) Hey, it's my class, right? I can change it. And it's different for a reason. I hope it's clear. And somebody I live with expressed a desire to make it a little clearer. And... We don't have a cat or a dog, so you know who it was. And all our kids are gone. So I thank you to Karen. But but also, the more that thought about it and talked to Steve, and, and I, I think this is more clear. So let me see what you think. It says relatively the same thing as last week. But the reason I changed it is Bernie's fault primarily. Because as I thought about how to organize the thoughts for tonight, I I realized that Foundation Belief 4, as I laid it out last week, wasn't as clear of an umbrella for what we're going to cover tonight as well. So let me read the updated, the new and revised version of Belief Number 4. Christians are able. Christians are able to bear one another's burdens as a result of our adoption, imparted gifts, 
and revealed word of God, by which we bless each other as we minister Christ to one another in the communal life of the body of Christ. I wanted to get the word competent out of our definition because that word implies things that imply learning and academics and certification and material. Now, it doesn't have to be, but that's the way it's pretty much understood. And so by saying that we're able, that's a different word. We're able. And I also wanted to get it out of there because of the time we spent with Romans 15:14 and the way that word competent by J. Adams was translated as, as um, it really means able. We're able. It had nothing to do with academics. I also wanted, I mean, we, we, I introduced adoption. So this is our adoption into the family. Imparted gifts. These are spiritual gifts, right? We all have spiritual gifts. I don't want to, we're going to talk some about that tonight. Revealed word of God. Revelation. So we're able by, by some, there's some things about being in the body of Christ that make, it's not just a mystical we're able. There's something to being able. And then the goal here is we bless each other as we minister Christ to one another in the communal life, the communal life of the body of Christ. We're doing this together. So one of the tensions that we felt when we talked about, if you feel like, I don't know if I'm saying the right thing, isn't one of those tensions perhaps that we're thinking too much about just me? Like, it's just my responsibility to say the right thing. But if we're thinking about it here, it's not all dependent on us, is it? We have the whole body of Christ to help us. You know, the weaker, you're weak at times, they hold up the, the stronger members hold up the weaker members. And there's times when you'll be weak and another brother will come along or sister to bear you up. And so it is as we minister widely the gifts and we have more of a communal entire body of Christ view, then, then that also, it's not a one-on-one pressure. It's not dependent on you. You have the body of Christ to help you. Do you like this? Is it okay? You probably don't even remember last week, so you can't compare it. But I think it's better than last week's. And last week we started our discussion, didn't we? We, we? we tried to reinforce the idea that, that we're so prone toward individualism. It, we, we don't understand the nature of y'all, this idea that, and we spent some time talking about, this is what Dr. Bingham talked about, this unholy trio of rationalism, presentism, and individualism, and how this disease gets into us. And if we don't see it, then, and we don't see how it impacts this whole world of who we call and why, and how independent we are, and how we view the church, then we're going to miss something because we're all pressed in on this. And we use some examples from the Word, particularly in Ephesians 
where it talked about putting on the new self, putting on the body of Christ is what that means because that's the same word that's used in Ephesians 2 where it's talked about how the two became one new man. Jews and Gentiles together became a new man, which was the church. And that's the exact same word, new man, which refers to the church, obviously in Ephesians 2, is referenced here in Ephesians 4. But we're so individualized, we just talk about what it must be putting on the new self for me as a person. Well, that's true. We are new individuals in Christ. But the text supports clearly that it's a corporate, it's a you-all text. We're to put on one another. And you see that as the text unfolds. And then we finished last week with with this preeminence of the body of Christ over some of these other relationships. Did anybody think about this? Do you have any questions? This may be something that if we take on and we do another week or two that we could get into this in much more detail. But I do want to stop here because I posed that to you sort of toward the end of class last week. Did this make sense when I say the preeminence of the body of Christ over these? Does that make sense? What does that mean to somebody in a child-raising situation? Give me an example of how, how would that, how would you understand that in raising kids? Yeah, that's a very practical application, Philip. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. How about application even with, yes, Dan? Yes, very good application. And should. And so what are the implications of that toward involvement in Sunday school and some of the homeschool? Not, I'm not anti-homeschool. We homeschooled one of our kids for a while, but how that can become kind of a exclusive family unit. The family unit can, can be preeminent, can it, or over the body of Christ. That's a pretty practical problem. When you see your family as part of the family, wow, now they're servants, aren't they? They have a chance to serve you. You have, you have Sunday school kids who are just like, Sunday school classes. You've got some kids that are a little bit stronger in the Lord. Some may not know the Lord at all. What an opportunity for young people to be engaged in ministering to their friends in Sunday school. Because you know, there's a lot of broken families, a lot of divorces in church. We know it. Great opportunities for ministry there. You think through this even more. I know it's very in the area of dating it, it's a wonderful thing to think about because everybody, I touched on it last week, but everybody spends time thinking about in dating relationships, it, it, it's a process. They're thinking about, okay, how long do I date somebody before I pray with them? And, and how long, you know, what kind of verbal commitment should I give and when? And I don't want to mislead. And, and is it okay for me to go out with more than one person at a time? Because that might not be right because... I mean, that might offend that other person. You know, if they find out, I actually went out on another date and I just started to date this other person. But how many dates do you need to have with somebody to kind of know whether this is the right person or not? And so you're, you're, you're juggling all these different things. And what, what, if, what if your sister and brother in Christ and you're getting to know one another and ministering to one another, 
and helping grow each other and edify each other in the Lord and, and trust that the Lord's going to direct and see what develops. Now all of a sudden, you, you're seeing your relationship dating even in a broader view of the preeminence of the body of Christ. And it's kind of, you, you're servants now. You're, you're working together. You're serving the Lord together. You're engaged. You, by the way, you want to get a chance to sort of get to know the heart of another person spiritually? Serve. Don't spend every day trying to be together. Which restaurant are we going to go to? What movie are we going to see? You know, what are we going to do together? Look at it in a bigger framework. So I think there's a lot here to discuss. Anything else on that? You ready for your handout? And this is what it is. This is our outline for tonight. And this is why you're going to need the handout because it's small print. So, Well, by now you see what the categories are. Content, competence, language, process, vocation, and we'll call this viable church or visible church leadership. It's called this leadership. And if you don't remember the difference between the visible and invisible church, we'll define that again when we get there. So these are the categories that... This is our outline for tonight. We're going to go through the six of these categories. We're going to... I don't have slides for every category, but I've got a handful of them. We'll spend most of our time tonight on language and vocation because I think that's really um, sticky and, and compelling if we ponder and think about it. So let's start with Zoe, shall we? Or start with um, our first one, content. What I'm saying is that Christians and biblical counseling that you get some Zoe emphasis, but it's rooted in specific suke behaviors. What I mean by that is that most counseling, and the reason I put Christian and biblical together here that Jeff noticed, is because although there are some differences of emphases within these, all Christian and biblical counselors, I believe, have issues in every one of these areas. Some greater than others. And I, as I thought about it, it just seemed like separating them and calling this Christian and this biblical and trying to make sure you understood what fit under what was confusing. It was confusing to me, and I was struggling with it. So, now, you'll see some differences, and I'll talk about it tonight a little bit more. As you all know, I, I have a lot of background here in the biblical counseling world. I'm comfortable with that. I've become less comfortable with it over the last three years. But that's why it was hard for me to even clump them together. Steve made me do it. No, he didn't make me do it. We, but I think it's important to do it this way. So the content... Even in the best of biblical counselors, I believe, the content is still not nearly enough in the Zoe world. 
And I'm going to give you some examples to demonstrate that tonight. Now, the body of Christ, well, we should be talking about, we're talking about Zoe things in the body of Christ. Let's look at these four verses. I want to look them up and read them. We're not going to discuss them tonight, but they're there for reference. But, but as, as we read these verses together and we think about them, think about them in the context of, of ministry to other people. So let's start with the first Timothy 1 verse 5. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Wonderful. Goal of the instruction, is it certification? Is it is it a degree? No. What a wonderful goal. No, Second Peter 1, 8 and 9. Good. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we learning? We're learning the Lord. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Zoe language. Let's look at Ephesians 4.15. Ephesians 4.15, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And then we'll look at Hebrews 5.3 and 4. Hebrews 5.14, right. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Maturity. So content. Content that is built around this tension between Suke world and Zoe world. And content that, for the most part, in the counseling world, focuses on Horizontal issues, not on vertical issues. Well, how about competence? How about our second subject? In the Christian and biblical counseling world, competence is defined as learning, credentials, certification. This is something new, CEUs. Do you know what CEUs are? Continuing education units. Now, that is, for every association, the best money-making deal out there, right? Because not only do you need to be certified initially to get your license, but you need continuing education units to maintain your certification. And, by the way, they're not free, as anybody who is a speech therapist or doctor or anybody else knows. And certainly... If you're a psychologist, an LPC certified psychologist, counselor, you need ongoing CEUs. And by the way, attending most of these good counseling conferences, even the biblical counseling conference hosted by a group I started, Association of Biblical Counselors, you earn CEUs for your licensing support. So a very important reason to go. Academics and specialties. Now, look, in 
when we're talking about ongoing CEUs for most professions, it's very critical. It's important. Nobody's saying that learning and ongoing learning isn't important. I've got a father-in-law who's, I won't say how old you are, Dad, because you look younger than you are, but he is still going and going to learning, and he's going down to Baylor Hospital, and he's continuing to keep up with the latest items in medicine and surgery. And he's been retired, quote, for a long time, but he's still serving, answering phone calls, giving good counsel on medical issues. So we're not saying that certification and learning is wrong. What we're talking about is what's going on here in the counseling world and what they view competence for counseling is. And in the Christian world, well, what did we say earlier? Adoption into the family, a good conscience. That's important, isn't it? If you don't have a good walk with the Lord, you're not going to minister to anybody else. A clean conscience. Guidance and gifts of the Spirit. Both of those are important. We've got spiritual gifts. Some are teachers. Some are pastors. Some have the gift of evangelism, exhortation, encouragement, administration. But we also have the guidance of the Spirit in terms of the implementation of those gifts in the body of Christ. And then we have the very mind of Christ. We talked about that last week. And then we have the issue that we read in that last verse in Hebrews 5.14, about maturity. So, to the point that brought up earlier that Bernie mentioned, it some things are going to be more natural for younger believers to minister to maybe their younger friends to, but they're going to want an older believer to come alongside on something else. That's biblical. Older women teaching younger women. Older men teaching younger men. There is a place for maturity in the body of Christ. And we talked about competence, didn't we? It's told the story of Jordan. What makes you competent to talk about our class? Remember that story? And it, 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 Is it enough for me to just be a Christian with a tie? Is that enough? What else do I need to be competent? And we spent time talking about how the, the whole issue of competent to counsel came about from Romans 15:14 and J Adams uh, we think unfortunate translation of this verse okay language my goodness we have some stuff to talk about on language i don't have room here i just gave you a few words counselee i could have put counselor counselee counseling disorders syndromes Sessions, cases, practice, personality types, needs, trigger points, depression. Interesting word. Now, I could give you a bunch more words. Therapeutic language abounds. But within the counseling world, this is the language. In the body of Christ world, we have different language. Brother, sister. Sin, flesh, world, enemy, love, faith, joy, grace, mercy, repentance, perseverance. Now you might say, but Jim, I know a lot of counselors that are biblical and Christian counselors, and they use those words. Amen. They do. A lot of the material of those you have read in classes 
if you've been in a previous class of mine, from good biblical counselors, they use these words a lot, and I praise God when they do. But you don't have to look far to see these words mixed in, do you? And it's confusing to us. We don't know how to deal with it. That's what this class is trying to do. Sort through it, demystify some of these language issues. Well, we've seen this slide before. What happens when our postmodern culture and baggage, we start to use these their words when Scripture clearly has different meanings? One critical error that Christian and biblical counselors, and Steve uh, wrote this, and it was, it was spot on, one critical error Christian and biblical counselors fall into comes when not distinguishing sufficiently the Greek and Hebrew word meanings in the way the writers intended. They just don't know the word. I mean, that's a pervasive problem, isn't it, in the evangelical church? Just don't know the word. So, for example, here's some good examples of some good words that talk about one anothering kind of things. You know, these are all different words translated differently, although you'll notice this word, parakaleo, is translated often as exhort and encouraged. And you can kind of make sense of it as you look at the context. So you have admonish, to warn, admonish, counsel from the present course, to turn away. It's, it's, it means to take a specific biblical word and, and to turn somebody away from what they're doing. Admonish. Nathetio, that's, remember where that word was? It was the word that Jay translated in Romans 15, 14 as counsel. So he made that word mean counsel, and therefore it's no longer admonish. But admonish has a specific meaning for us. It's a good word. Nothing wrong with admonish. To teach, didasco, to teach, exhort, bear patiently with one another, is another word. To have patience, to forbear, to remain tranquil while waiting, Encourage, to exhort, to call near, to beseech, to urge, to invite, to comfort. And then the very word comfort a whole new different Greek word for comfort. Uh, to console, who comforts all, us all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 2 Corinthians 1.4. A, a beautiful verse. A one anothering verse. This is not a class on New Testament Greek language. But if we're going to talk about language, and language is a big issue here, we need to be specific and use biblical language, right? That's what we're saying. And biblical language gives us some help over here. So let me give you a specific example. I've mentioned the word depression before. So what do you think of when you hear the word depression? Just from what you know, not a right or wrong answer, what do you think of? Oh, somebody's depressed. What do you think? Down? Hopeless. Hopeless. Discouraged. Discouraged. Deeply saddened. Deeply saddened. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Suicidal thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. 
And, and it, that's a scary thing, isn't it? If you hear somebody's really depressed, I mean, it's in the, it's in the press this week. The pilot, the co-pilot that flew the plane in was being treated for depression. It's, this, is, this is nothing to, I mean, this is tough stuff. This is pervasive. I mean, Ed Welch, one of the best of the biblical counselors out there, has written extensively on depression. So, here's my question. Is it a biblical word? I like Jeff's already answering. You were in my class before, so I, I know. I'm willing to accept that. So, I mean, there is it's a great book. I mean, it's the best book that's been written so far on depression, even though it starts by not defining the word depression biblically in a way. Go ahead, Jeff. And and we all think medical treatment. And I, I'm not a medical doctor. And I'm not here to tell you that, that there's... I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know serotonin levels. I don't know. I mean, I've read stuff and and I hear it on both sides. And, and, and there are wonderful Christian doctors who believe that that you can with medication, impact the serotonin level and get people up out of depression as they have been diagnosed. There's a major pastor here in town that will hold that. Yes, Robert? Yes. Yeah, depending on your translation. What did it, what was it called back in Spurgeon's day? Anybody know? It wasn't called depression. It was called a deep melancholy. Deep Melancholy. And there's a brand new book that's come out about Spurgeon's depression. I've got it on my Kindle. I've been reading it. And after 40 pages, I'm going, oh, no. I bought the Kindle version so I didn't have to spend too much. But but it, was, it, it has lots of good stuff in it still. I mean, it's, but, but he, Spurgeon, this book is teaching that, that Spurgeon inherited... Part of his physical, he had a melancholy temperament that he was born with, that you can't do anything about. Born with a melancholy temperament, and you are stuck with it. Good luck with the Holy Spirit getting you out of that, because it's not going to happen, because this is, you're just tough. This is what Spurgeon believed. Now, we love Spurgeon. Anybody that loves, read any Spurgeon, it just shows how... This can get in, and Spurgeon was influenced by a secular psychologist. It wasn't a psychologist at the time, because but but by a secular um, teaching on on this influence of, of of hereditary melancholy nature, and so it, it just we're so prone. The danger isn't whether it's a biblical word or not. In that sense, as you said in a translation. The issue is, what do we think of when we hear the word depression? We think of all these things, and most of us understand it's severe, it's mild, it's clinical, it's, it is, um, what's the other one? There's multiple type, manic depression. So you have different, and they're all outlined in the DSM-4 or DSM-5 book. It tells you what the behavioral characteristics of each level of depression is. And when you go in and you're discouraged, then 
you're going to be labeled based on your answers to the question, well, you are, I guess you're just mildly depressed. I think one pill a week will be sufficient for you. Yes, Hampton. I'm reading a book right now, um, hmm. Darwin, on things. Well, it's hard. You, you talk to somebody that's been diagnosed with depression. What do you do? Because you hit on what, what you've heard. You know, the three in a secular world, in a diagnostic world, the three most common issues that somebody who is depressed faces. The first one is a sense of guilt and shame over the past. They, they cannot overcome their guilt and shame of the past. And the second one is a sense of hopelessness about the future. It's like you're in a tunnel and it's a dark tunnel and it's black and you cannot see the end of the tunnel. And the third is a sense of helplessness about your current situation. You feel like you're, you're caught, you're in, in jail and, um, or in what about Bob terms, I'm all tied up in knots, you know. So you, you have... These, and it could be not just one, it could be all three of them together. Can you imagine all three of those together and how real that would be? You all know people. There are people in all of our churches that have been so depressed that they can't function in life. They can't get out of bed. And they're medicated or not or whatever. And so we're not, I'm not trying to take trick this subject gently or lightly at all and as Bernie said I mean Ed's book is excellent on giving us lots of Zoe kind of thoughts around the issue of depression well let me give you something that was also came out of a biblical counselor who who took these three verses Paul Tripp did and it wonderfully unfolded these three verses and you can use them you can use them when you get down yourself 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, what does that address for the guilty, shame-ridden person? We're assuming the people we're ministering to are believers, okay? What is that? How does that encourage them? Points them to what? What what do they get when they were born again that deals with shame and guilt? What's the yeah, deliverance? They're justified. They're declared righteous. They've been born again. Yeah, how many depressed people are serving anybody doing anything? Amen. That's wonderful, Gail. Well, let's look at verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. What does that point you to? Yeah, our hope, our future. It's not a black hole for us as Christians, is it? No. It may seem like that here under the sun. But in the sun, it is, we are, we're, we're handled. We have reserved for us in heavenly places every spiritual blessing. Now, our faith weakens. We have to be reminded of that. In verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Where does that direct us to? The present, right? We're protected right now by the power of God. What's our battle? Our battle's a faith battle. It's not a behavioral battle. Our battle's to believe the promises, to believe in the blessed assurance. That's ours. We, we need to encourage one another in the body of Christ to stir up our faith. That's what we're struggling with. So here you have past, future, present. And that's, you see that in Scripture a lot, kind of laid out. You have the gospel, don't you? The benefits of the gospel right there that deal specifically with things that depressed people deal with all the time. Can't we bring that alongside? I'm, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to simplify this so much that, that we don't, you know, I'm not saying we don't love, we don't listen, we don't care. I'm not trying to say that you sit down for five minutes or that we always have a great results of singing Blessed Assurance and having the lights come on. I am saying that we do have a living God and his word is alive and we are in him. Isn't that a great place to start? And don't we as believers know that? Yeah, I know this is, these are hard, these are hard trials. Well, and think about how overwhelming when you have somebody who is that down in so many different aspects, how the entire body of Christ could have come alongside to help. I mean, I started the class. I, mean, I don't know if I would have been called mildly depressed back when I lost my first wife, but I didn't, wasn't thinking like that so much, but I'm sure that there were symptoms of, that would fit into the DSM-4 for me. And I had, but I had lots of people ministering to me in different ways, is, is my point. And Job certainly needed that. Yeah, Jeff. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, now I need to remember what it stands for. But what it is, it is the Bible for psychologists. And it is, I forgot exactly what it stands for now, but it has to do with categories. Every different disorder and syndrome um, is defined. Well, then, you know, the, the most recent one was the the one that Tiger Woods they talked about was the narcissist, you know, syndrome. No, no, his was a that wasn't the same one. That's probably what we all have, right? Yes. I would just point out that that. Right. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Jeff. And yet, that's what when people go to their doctor. They're going to diagnose you with something. And, and that's the problem. How do we take language? You know, how do we take language like this? And how do we turn it into biblical language? And we, we just... But if we start with biblical language to begin with, it's rich. It gives us lots of... It deals with all of these things. Everything that's common to man. All of our struggles are dealt with by the Word of God. It, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I can't figure that out. I mean, I don't want to be too simplistic with it, Phil. I think um, Charles Whitman, University of Texas Tower, in um, 1966, two years before I started at Texas, went up to the tower, took a bunch of ammo, and he was a, and he just started picking off people, killed bunches of people. 
And when they did the autopsy, he had a brain tumor that was huge. You know, so there was a situation where, I mean, does that excuse him doing that? Of course not. He's responsible for what he did. But so it, this, these are complicated things between what's going on. I, I, none of us should be surprised at the depravity of man, though. We see it in the word of God over and over and over. Things that make no sense from, you know, even our sophisticated time. So I I don't know. Yeah, Steve? Yeah, if, if your point is that in the church, I think you and I have talked about that, we don't give Satan enough, you know, believability that he himself as an instrument still under somehow the permissive, whatever word you want to use, control of God will wreak havoc on earth. Um, uh, I haven't, um, but but probably because I'm blind to thinking about it that much. I, I probably don't give it enough credence in my own beliefs. Being in a church where it's not talked about very much, and um, one of the authors that that I don't like a lot because of one aspect of his teaching, I do like a lot because he sort of stirred up my views on the influence of demons and 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 how we just are blind to that. So I I've learned from those who've been overseas. They've told me the same thing, whether it's India or Africa, um, the, the sense. I mean, I think Karen and I one time were in, where were we at? Uh, yeah, Salem, Massachusetts. How could I forget? And we, 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 we felt spiritually an oppression in that town. I mean, we, we just, we couldn't wait to get out. It was weird. Felt the same way in the place outside New Mexico that had all the crystals and, I don't know, Sedona, New Mexico, and there was just a sense of evil mysticism there that seemed to be satanic in a way. Yes? Well, it's worthwhile talking more about. Yeah, Jeff? I would just point out that... Uh, he's good at that. That's true. Yeah, and there is there is, um, there is good discussion about... I don't think Satan... I don't think demons can possess believers. I think Scripture says... But they can influence them. And, and I think... So that's that's excellent. I'm. I have a couple more slides here on this, but I, because of time tonight, I'm going to leave these in the PowerPoint. And if we do come back, and and meet for another week or two and talk about some of the more specifics, that this is. This comes from CCF. This is a group. If if. If we're wondering why we struggle with language issues here, then then we're influenced a great deal, even by the best of the counselors is my point. I, I expect to be influenced over here. I'm listening to one of the radio programs the other day, and uh, it's on, you know, the Word, and it's a counseling program, and, and, and I could have counted the number of therapeutic terms I could have got to 10 within 30 seconds. I mean, they just, every sentence was, I mean, they must have said trigger points and therapy and, and you know, root cause analysis. And 
And they, they must have said all of that over and over and over. But we still get it even from the good guys that I love. And I love CCF. And, and here, and, and this is straight from their uh, website. I, I came up with a lot of quotes, but... But you'll see that they'll say good things. What you'll do when you read this, you'll see they say good things. But mixed in, they'll say things like, that means there are some who will function well in a more formal capacity and will engage in formal counseling. And then down here, well, I'll just let you read it. I I don't want to hurry this. But you'll see what I mean, and if you don't, we'll talk about it. This came from Jeremy Lellick, who Jeremy, my wife or my uh, daughter, interned for Jeremy. He's a wonderful believer. Um, I love him in the Lord. He was was working with um, with a Christian counseling group that when when he was one of the people who helped start the Association of Biblical Counselors uh, that several of us helped start. And he's now the president of the Association of Biblical Counselors. And so this is a blog that came out, an email I got yesterday. And Steve was nice enough to already get it into a PowerPoint. And if you read this, sometimes when people need a word, word like worldview, read a word like, let me start again. Sometimes when people read a word like worldview, they experience a mental shutdown because they associate it with some highbrow form of philosophy. People do the same when they read a word like psychology, unless, of course, they have a vested interest in the subject. For the typical believer, the reality that we all perpetually operate according to a worldview and that we all hold personal assumptions about human psychology is too often overlooked. In fact, each one of us functions from a worldview, and we also interpret people based on some theory, though it may not be formalized, of psychology. If you don't believe me, considering the following what-if scenarios. So he's going to give you five scenarios. What if your teenage child was using a drug? How would you respond? What would you think? What about your spouse here? What if your pastor? These are different things. And he lays these scenarios out, and he says... Gaining an understanding of worldview and psychology should not be left to the philosopher or to the psychologist, for they're both constructs out of which we all operate each and every day. The question we must ask ourselves, does my worldview and my assumptions about people align with Scripture? Well, that sounds good, right? Is, is what I believe, my worldview, this is a worldview class, does it align with Scripture? My worldview about people? and about how to resolve issues. So what did he leave out? How Zoe-oriented, how vertically-oriented is that? It's not at all. It's, it's your worldview about people and yourself. And as you get that from Scripture, and all of these issues, if you read them, they're all, how would you deal with that with your person? How would you handle that and resolve that issue? Now, we're not against people having marriages that stay bad or kid conflicts stay. Nobody's saying ignore that. What we're saying is the emphasis is there. It's always there. And it has to be there because that's the world they live in. And it has to be there because of their vocation. 
So let me finish. If you'll bear with me, I can get to this in five minutes. The process, and that's not doing justice to those slides, so read them. The process. Well, what's the process for Christian and biblical counseling? Well, it's in an office, right? It's a therapeutic style. You know what I mean. So talk to me, Paul. Tell me, how did that make you feel? Hmm. Hmm. Well, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Hmm. I see. Really. So it's, it's your style. It's your tone of voice. It's, it's how kind you are and how pleasant you are and how empathetic you are. And, and it's private. And oh, by the way, the style for some people is behind a desk. But others, they're sitting there beside you. They don't want to come across as if they're the authority and you're not, even though they are the counselor and you are the counselee. And don't forget that. You, you'll, you'll remember that on your way out the door when you write the check. So other process terms, okay, group, data gathering, root cause analysis, weekly, informal. How about this one, accountability? What's wrong with accountability partners? Well, find it in the Bible, okay? It's a, it's a counseling term. Again, is it help? I mean, does it help control behavior a little bit? I'm not against that. Yes. Ah, God, why didn't I think of that? Golly, that was a good one. Confidentiality. Well, that's important. And actually, there's, there's some biblical nature to confidentiality. We're to keep things between two people. If you have an issue, go to that person. You know, so there's a little bit of that, right? But boy, it's a big issue over here. And of course, homework. But I know you don't want homework. That's why we had no homework in this class because I didn't want to be accused of being over here. Now, how about the process in the body of Christ? Informal. It's not location-based at all, is it? It's elder shepherding. It's the sufficiency of each member of the body. That's what the body of Christ looks like. Do you see a difference in the process? Between the two? And by the way, even the good biblical counselors, I read a wonderful piece by Dave Pallison who talked about the benefits of the process of the church. How it's so much better over here this way than it is over here. Great stuff. I, I want him over here. Okay, that would be wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, those first four or five sessions of data gathering um, do allow you to make pretty good money in gathering your data so you can more efficiently counsel them the next time they come in. No, I know that. I know that. But there's only so much you can get done in an hour is my point. So... Um, Okay, well, let's, let's go to vocation. This is the biggest one. Maybe this is, is big. I don't know. They're all important. This is a job. They get paid by the hour, typically. They have ethical guidelines, by the way. They're not allowed to call. If you're a counselor, you're not allowed to call somebody during the week just to say, Hi, how are you doing? 
fact, if you see one of your clients at Tom Thumb, you're not supposed to engage in conversation with them. You know that? That's, you violate your ethical guidelines when you do that. And, of course, there's legal guidelines. I mean, very much legal. I mean, churches need to think about this. That's why if they were one anothering and not trying to build counseling programs, they wouldn't have to worry so much about so, so many of the legal aspects of, well, did you offer counseling to this person? No, we, we don't do that. We're just Christians with a tie. I mean, they, they could get away with that. They're just believers. It's simple. If they just, if they just be a Christian. Well, how do you deal with people that are depressed? Well, I, you know, I could give you a lot of examples. So, but in the body of Christ, there are people that make money in the body of Christ, pastoral staff, administration staff, but it's a provision, isn't it? Now, let's take a minute and look at this because 1 Timothy 5.18 is a big verse among professional Christian counselors that defends their right to charge money. I know. I sat in a group 10 years ago when... Now, some, by the way, some counselors don't charge by the hour. There's a handful of them that, that just whatever you can afford. We just, we just do it under the Lord. You give us whatever you need. I, I, I respect that. They have other issues. I mean, there's still other issues, okay, but I do respect that. But they said, look, I mean, look at 1 Timothy 5.18. It says, it says, for Scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the labor is worthy of his wages. And they said, look, that was for, if you look at verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So it's saying that those who are working hard at preaching and teaching should be paid they're worthy of it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. But can you imagine now? Now, how did Paul view that? First of all, to your point, Jeff. What's the context of First Timothy five seventeen and eighteen? Is this parachurch ministries? No, this is within the body of Christ, isn't it? Within the visible church. They're saying within the visible church, that church structure, that's, remember, visible church or what we see, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean everybody in the visible church is a believer. The invisible church are believers. You know, they're the ones that are genuine believers. The visible church is what we see, where we go, the church membership role for those who have memberships. So within the visible church, that's the context here. So first of all, the context isn't for people outside. They say, well, but we're a parachurch ministry. Well, how did Paul deal with that? So Paul said that he could charge. He's teaching. He has a right to do that. But he was a tent maker because he wanted to offer the gospel without charge. Not for sordid gain. As the Lord would provide that was his view. Yeah, pastors and elders, both they need, because a lot of times it falls on just elders. I mean, 
could you, I mean, should we take money for preaching the gospel? I mean, that's what, if you read the difference between biblical counselors and Christian counselors, they emphasize we preach the gospel. We're Christ-centered. We believe in the depravity of man. We believe in, in the basic doctrines of grace that we all love. These guys get that. And that's what they're saying. We're preaching Christ. How, how can you do that and charge for it? It's just not biblically right. No matter how you slice it, it's not right. And, I mean, when you... Do you know one parachurch organization that charges by the hour? If you're an InterVarsity or Campus Crusade for Christ, and, and, and they're, you know... They don't think like that. They're they're being supported. And as the Lord provides, they're able to do things. CCEF, they 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 call themselves a parachurch ministry with counseling services that they charge by the hour. Now, they may divide it up. They may have all of their materials over here on one side and their counseling services are more professional. I don't know, but they represent it as a whole. And it's just, it's just not right. And these are, I mean, for me, the, as we've talked about, I, I just, I wish we could get their passion and their love for one another and their wonderful teaching uh, around the practical issues and pains and trials of life that, by the way, have been taught through the years. It's not unique. You know, you can read the Puritans and lots of them teach on it. But I'd love to get them immersed into the body Part of pastoral staffs, and, and and able to do things. Yes. No. No. This actually the practical implementation of all of this is worthy of several sessions. How do elders bring that into church? How do they encourage and exhort it? Um, and how do the and and from an ecclesiological standpoint, the benefit of a multitude of elders. The and from another point. What happens when you have a, a, a pastor over a church and he doesn't listen to the elders? And how does that work? And to Bernie's point, you, you've got so much that's top-heavy. Churches are overwhelmed with these things. And therefore, they have groups and they look for packaged programs that try to deal with this. Most of which are influenced greatly over here by the counts, Christian counseling terminology and very much therapeutic process-driven I mean, could you imagine paying for by the hour for a hospital visit or somebody to come pray with you? Or, you know, I'm glad you have your kids in Sunday school and it's just 20 bucks a kid. That's it. And we have a special if you have three kids for 50 bucks this week. Okay, special deal for you. I mean, that sounds silly, but that's we have to be consistent. Is it ministry? Is it the gospel or is it a vocation? Which is it? I, Steve and I have talked about this. I'm almost better off if somebody said, I don't want to be this. I'm going to be a counselor, a secular counselor, and work in schools and work somewhere because they expect to be paid. I don't want to confuse. I'm not trying to bring this stuff in here and call it this in here and mess up this world. Just, just be a counselor. It's okay. Nothing dishonorable about it. Hopefully you bring your Christian worldview to it. But you see, we, we're just we, when we get integrated here, it gets sloppy. I'm way over time. As bad, you know, as bad as.
this issue is. There's even a secular definition of this called simony. The making of profit out of sacred things, the buying or selling of ecclesiastical privileges, for example, pardon. Sounds like what the Reformation was about, doesn't it? In reporting on their counseling fees, RPC says we have a set fee of $160 for each 50-minute session of individual couples or family counseling. Payment is due at each session. We're not able to accept any type of health insurance. If you need to cancel or reschedule your appointment, you must notify your counselor 48 hours before your scheduled appointment time. You'll be charged in full for your scheduled session if you fail to contact your counselor. RPC, you know where that is? By the way, the Bobgans, I love the Bobgans. If you're not familiar with their ministry called Psychoheresy, Google them. Wonderful material. Dear, dear Christians who have been on the forefront of, they have a ministry called Psychoheresy, so you kind of know what they think. They kind of lean over here a little bit. Um, but this was in their newsletter. RPC, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Pastored by Tim Keller. We love Tim Keller. Heard him speak at Park City's Prez here. This, this is mainstream, people. This is not some New Age seeker church. This is at the heart of Reformed, core, biblical, theologically sound church. This is grievous. And nobody cares. Nobody talks about it. We just, other than the few of us in this room, and we're struggling together to try to make sense of it. Well, we're finished, but I'm going to leave you with this to read. Visible church leadership, counseling delivered by outsourcing group-specific programs and credentials. That's what most elders and pastors do. They have an issue. Who can we call to help with it? I get... You know, who do you know that can help? Or group programs, the big Celebrate Recovery, Stephen Ministry programs, or credentials. Have you been trained or certified? As you, now that you've been trained, will you be our counselor? And yet, one anothering is done, this great verse in Ephesians, this, it's called equipping, you know, the elders and deacons are for the equipping of the saints, but that word equipping isn't really mean equipping. Hampton knows this already. It, it, is, it has to do with perfecting and maturing. That's what the body of Christ, overseers, those who are, are teachers and elders, shepherding, are, are to be helping the body of Christ mature and grow in the Lord. And so there's a role there for them, but their role isn't to be dumping it out or they're looking for credentials. Their role is to mature their body so that the body can be the, the fellow shepherds and minister to one another and bear one another's burdens. If you want some examples, you can read about one another in Ephesians. i leave you with a couple slides here. I'll let you read through those. The Word of God is rich. There's a bunch of one another's, but not every one another has to be using the words one another. Sometimes... For the building up of the body of Christ, well, that's edifying one another. So sometimes, you know, it doesn't have to say one another to imply one anothering kind of things. So I just wanted to give you a sample of that. So next week when we finish, 
I have to blame Bernie for this too. Because when we're talking at the end of last week, not only did she say, Jim, not only do I feel, you know, I, I want to have more confidence in what I say. But see, you know what she said? She said, the other thing that bothers me, I wonder if people really care enough to really spend the time. I wonder if that's not a bigger issue. And I smiled. I said, my goodness, you have outlined next week and the week after that too. Because that's where we're going next week. Why, why do we not care? What's going on? What, what kind of motivation is behind you know, this? That will be the final piece to our building block. It, like tonight, hopefully it will help you know, put a complete picture together or more of a complete picture. And so pray, because who knows exactly what I'll show up with next week. But I think I know where I'm going next week. And thank you for letting me go way over time, but we had to cover a lot. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the time you have given us. Hopefully time that we've used uh, for you. Because all that you give us, every minute of every day, should be used for you. So we praise you for that. Uh, Keep us safe tonight and bless us till next week. In Jesus' name, amen.